Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. And friends, we are in the midst of a series talking about older brothers and sisters in the faith. We have looked at the early centuries of the church, and now we're we're starting to move back again into some more recent history. Um, I think we're looking, what, Sarah, the 19th? Did we just figure this out? 19th 19th century? 19th and 20th century. So who are we looking at today? So we are looking at three women today who are important in the history of the English translation of the Bible. Julia Smith, uh, Helen Sparrell, I'm not positive that that's how she pronounces (laughs) her name, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So the first of these women is Julia Smith, who was born in the late 1700s, but she had a very long life. Um, She grew up in Connecticut in a congregational family. Her father uh, was a minister who left the ministry for a career in law. And he also, though, was a big follower of the teachings of the end times Baptist preacher, William Miller. And that is important later on. The Millerites! Yay! We're going to talk about Millerites? Only briefly. Okay. Oh, I'm glad you know who you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't they become the Seventh-day Adventists? Maybe? After it turned out the world didn't end? Yeah. They they didn't scrap their their group. They just changed their theology and said, well, it turns out we weren't just about the end of the world. Also, you should only go to church on Saturdays! (laughs) Well, he's really only important because the fact that he was wrong spurred her to, like, study the Bible. Oh, cool. All right. Okay. So, like, that's why he's important in this particular story, because he was he was wrong. Because the world didn't end. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, and her mother, Hannah, was very cool. Um, she taught her daughters, because uh, she had five daughters, only daughters. Um, she taught her daughters French, Latin, and Greek at home. Wow. Like, which very cool. Uh, she also advocated for the freedom of slaves because uh, it turns out that at that point that was an issue still. Um, and then later on, she attended a boarding school in New Haven where she continued her study in French. And with all of this fancy book learning, she, for exactly one year, at the age of 31, taught at the Troy Female Seminary in New York before she ultimately returned home and lived with most or all of her sisters on the family farm. And she remained there with her sisters until the ripe old age of 87 when she decided it was time to get married and she married Mm -hmm. Amos Parker. Wow. Yep. Which I think is just so cool that, you know, the age of 87, she's never been married, never expressed an interest in getting married. She's just like, it's time. It's time. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So there's still hope for me. (laughs) There's always hope. You know, if you want it. So, um, what what intrigues you about Elizabeth Cady Stanton? To wait, like, no, this oh, I'm is sorry. Uh, Julia Smith. I'm sorry, Julia Smith. What? Tell, uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, what what of all the people that you could have chosen to share with us today about? Like, tell us about like what is it that fi- makes you uh, com- fi- is compelling about her? So, as previously mentioned, she, you know, Miller was wrong about the end of, end of the world. But since he was wrong and she had, like, grown up thinking the world is going to end, um, you know, in 1842, like, that's when the world was supposed to end, but it didn't. So she decided, 
know what? I'm going to search the Bible for myself to find out the clues that it is giving us about our present and future. Because, you know, again, just because he was wrong about the date doesn't mean that you can't search the Bible for these clues mm-hmm. about when the world is supposed to end. Um, so she, she decided in order to do this, in order to find these clues, I need to pick the Bible apart with a fine tooth comb. And not just in English, because that's translators can be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in order to do this properly, I have to translate the Bible myself. So she translated the Greek New Testament, the Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, and then she taught herself Hebrew so she could translate the Old Testament from the original language. So wait, Mom taught her Greek, Latin, and French, right? Yes, and then she taught herself Hebrew. And she taught her... Wow, Okay. As like a grown up, just because she's like, you know what, the Septuagint is a translation. Uh-huh. I need to. I mean, I struggled with Hebrew with a professor and a friend. It was. Yes. St- I mean, yeah. Me too. And for folks who don't automatically speak church nerd, the Vulgate was the famous translation of the Old Testament into Latin mm-hmm. that Jerome yeah. had done. Correct. Uh, and the Septuagint was the sort of collectively arrived at a translation of the uh, Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament into Greek. Greek. Yeah. Uh, so it would have been well-known by ancient folks, but like that's, that's, that's going for extra credit if in the 19th and 20th century you're studying the Vulgate and the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. All told, over the course of eight years, she translated the Bible five times. Wow. Like, she just was a rock star. She just was like, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it well. Um... And to publish her translation of the Bible, what she decided, like, that this is the best translation of this verse through the entire Bible. She, she published it in 1876 as a response to her treatment by men in the government who insisted on taxing her family farm, even though she and her sisters, who were the owners, couldn't vote. Hmm. And so at that point, she started this campaign of challenging the government's right to tax disenfranchised people. So, like, she also kind of became political as Mm -hmm. well as uh, Mm -hmm. her translation work Mm -hmm. that she was doing primarily for free, you know, until she published it and people bought it. Mm -hmm. But, um... She did tend to translate as literally as possible uh, and, tra- and tried to be consistent with her translation so that each Greek and Hebrew word was the same word in English wherever possible. So even though, for those of us who have studied languages, oftentimes you can translate different words multiple ways mm-hmm. and they have like multiple meanings. And often context is your cue as to which way will be the better translation. But she would be all like, okay, no. This word always is going to mean this English word. Mm-hmm. And so she would try to keep that as consistently as possible. And she aimed for exactness, not smoothness. So her translation was often very wordy, like a very stilted and very wooden. Sure. Um, it was uh, also for those who have studied Hebrew. Hebrew tends to be very poetic unless you translate it like super literally word for word. Um, and that's what she tended sure. to do. Um, one of my favorite quotes about her is from Professor Edward James Young, who taught at Harvard at the time, who expressed astonishment that she had, and I quote, translated so correctly without consulting some learned man. <laughs> 
So her translation yeah. was like used in such capacity because yeah. even though it was very wooded and stilted, it was very literal mm-hmm. and very exact. Um, but she did do some fascinating translation work with texts that related to women, which we have talked about before, like such as First Timothy, um, you know, let a woman learn in silence with mm-hmm. all subjection, which is the King James Version. Smith translated it as, let the woman, in freedom with care, learn all in subjection. And she also then would say, instead of, I suffer not to teach, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over man, she used, I trust not, suggesting that a woman may have authority over a man, though the writer of 1 Timothy would prefer that women do not exercise that option if they are not in a state of freedom from care. Hmm. It's interesting, like for someone who clearly is concerned in her scholarship to do things as faithfully to the original text as possible Mm -hmm. rather than I have this predetermined agenda. I want to make the Bible say what I want it to be. Like, here, here's someone who very clearly is concerned with, I care about the original sources. I, whatever it says I want to go with, that uh, she ends up discovering or saying, look, it's not, that, it's not that I want to read something into the Bible that wasn't there. I'm trying to read this and discover, oh, it didn't mean what everybody always assumed it meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, how easy it is for us to say, well, this is the translation we've used for several hundred years. It must be how things actually mm-hmm. are. And to go back to the sources is one of those ways to go, maybe it didn't mean what we assumed it meant. Yep. So the second person I want to talk about also had a lot to do with um, the English translation of the Bible. She lived a little bit later. She was born in 1819. Uh, and she was the first woman from England to publish a translation of the entire Old Testament from Hebrew to English. And this is, she did this after taking upon herself to learn Hebrew after the age of 50. So she also learned Hebrew quite late in life. (laughs) Um, But she was originally um, an artist. She was a painter and a person who made sculptures. I'm not sure what the... Sculptor, maybe? Maybe. Sculptifier? Sculptificator? Possibly. (laughs) Statue maker? Unsure, because I've never thought, oh, here's a big rock, let me make a sculpture out of it. I've never thought that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But she she was married. She married James Spurrell, uh, who was a brewer. He made beer until he was ordained in 1847. He is best remembered for his pamphlet against this woman named Priscilla Sellen. Who was the founder of the Society of the Sisters of Mercy of Devonport, which was a monastic-like group associated with the Oxford movement within the Anglican Church? I read all of that from a book. I don't really know it. What, what <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> so I hope you don't ask so more her, information. I've her husband had a beef with someone named Priscilla. Got it. Yes, um, but by 1852, he no longer had a parish, so he was not um, acting minister very long and gotcha. basically his only worthwhile contribution was this pamphlet <laughs> um, but she decided to publish her work which was a translation of the Old Testament scriptures from the original Hebrew in 1885 so uh, after his her husband left the parish ministry and she was intentional about using Um, only translating from unpointed Hebrew, which means that there is no vowels. So in the Hebrew language, all of, like, the little dots and dashes, which are above and, like, Mm -hmm. above and below 
the letters, those are the vowels, and those were added later. Mm -hmm. um, and so she intentionally used even earlier, earlier versions of the text, right? Because she believed that to be the the original, original. Hebrew. Mm -hmm. So yeah. she wanted to go back as far as she possibly could. Um, it, but she she so she wanted to be as original as possible. But she also had absolutely no problem at all correcting the Hebrew text where she saw fit. <laughs> <laughs> so she would rearrange entire verses. And she would also smooth out the internal contradictions that you can find in the Bible. Such as changing the number of horsemen in Second Samuel chapter 8 from 1,700 horsemen to 7,000 horsemen. To reflect the number that you can find in First Chronicles chapter 18. <laughs> so she had like no problem doing stuff like this where she was like, well, clearly First Chronicles had it right and that Second Samuel is just wrong. Interesting. <laughs> so she had no problem doing stuff like that. But she would helpfully italicize uh, the print for words that are not in the Hebrew text that she was adding. Right. Um, the King James will do that too, I think, in the original. There'll be times where yeah. it'll be, it's not really the Hebrew, but this is the, the meaning. Okay. Yeah, but she had no problems, like, trying to correct it to, yeah. like, make it fit better. Um, so, really, ultimately, she is just remembered as uh, somebody who kind of helped along the English translation. Um, but when she's cited by Bible scholars today, it's as what not to do uh. when you <laughs> translate. So, basically, here's this uh, Helen Sparrell who, you know, just don't do what she did. Yeah. <laughs> don't change numbers in First Samuel. Right. No. <laughs> But it is, she is notable because she is only the second English translation of the Bible done by a woman. Um, second only to the wooden translation that we find by Julia Smith. Hmm. So, you know, she's, she's number two. Yeah. Number two. <laughs> it's interesting, like, as, as we're talking about two different people who had biblical translation as a part of their work and their sense of their calling, that this raises the the challenge that any translator, especially a translator of texts that you care about and take in a, like, inspirational, devoted, sort of, mm -hmm. a, this is authoritative mm -hmm. for my life kind of way, in that you can go the route, uh, in the, the first case, of I will be as wooden and literal as necessary even if my English is unreadable. And on the other hand, you can have the, the route of, well, where I think this doesn't line up, either with another passage uh, or with uh, it doesn't sound right in English, I will mm -hmm. offer that editorial suggestion. And in some sense, any translator has to fall somewhere on that continuum. Mm -hmm. And so these are not issues that are unique to them. This is, these are the ongoing yeah. questions yeah. that any translator does. And... Sometimes I'll, I'll hear people complain, like, how come they keep coming out with new Bible translations? Isn't it a one-and-done sort of thing? Once you've done it once in English, that should be done. And it feels to me like that loses the reality that language is a slippery thing. And that even, mm -hmm. like, the way a word lands or feels in 17th century England is different than the way it feels in 21st mm -hmm. century English. And even if that translation was decent or accurate 500 years ago, 400 years ago it may have a different feel and it doesn't work quite the same mm -hmm. way to get the meaning across even if you, and some of that depends on our languages one to one correspondent is is it like there's one word in english that always means the same thing in greek or hebrew or is and that's not really how language works you know yeah i mean language changes like for the example the word gay yeah like quite a while ago gay meant happy right mm -hmm. and then when we were children it was an insult right like, right right it was very like just mm -hmm. it was bad 
bad, and it meant something bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now it's just more of a descript. Hopefully, you're no longer using it in the bad way. Um, a descriptor of just somebody mm-hmm. who is homosexual. And um, there were years ago, I was I was asked to be the the reader for a community ministerial service in a Roman Catholic church in the, one of the the other community where I serve. And their translation they had had uh, there's a story of Abraham offering up Isaac for sacrifice, and the text said, "Offer up." Uh, your son Isaac as a holocaust and a holocaust is a burnt offering mm-hmm. but man it seems to me like any since yep. since 1945 that word can't mean it I mean, that, that word mm-hmm. has changed in a way mm-hmm. that it's nobody nobody means it in a but like mm-hmm. my brain can't not hear you know Auschwitz and, and Treblinka and, and mm-hmm. the crematories in the ovens even though yeah that the word means a burnt offering that's why we call the holocaust the holocaust but like there are places where it it's a slow gradual there's sometimes where an event changes the way a, mm-hmm. a word hits um, and it, anyway, like the, this, these are the challenges of translators, um, and and the the other thing that's interesting to me as you describe her, her wrestling with First Samuel versus Second Chronicles is like that either you can pretend there aren't those issues in a text and say, well, First Samuel says it differently than Second Chronicles, or Matthew gives a different number of generations than Luke does in his genealogy of Jesus, or they don't line up with what uh, Leviticus mm-hmm. says, and you can either ignore those and make one fit, or you can leave the tension there and go like, my job as a translator, I leave the, I leave the wrinkles where they are, and I leave the, this is, I'm just turning to what the text mm-hmm. says, but you got to own, you're doing, you're making a choice either way there. Even there were there were in the early centuries of Christianity, I think there was someone who tried to flatten out the Gospels and glom them into one like super narrative, the oh, Deuteronomy, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's like, well, instead of leaving them this four separate voices, I'm going to make them fit one timeline. And even at that, you're doing violence to the text. Mm-hmm. And you know, like, there's a certain amount like let Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell their stories their way, even if that means you were left scratching your head, going. Well, wait a second. Was the cleansing of the temple? Were there two different events? Did it happen early? Did it happen late? Let the stories be told the way they're told. Um, but man, we're not good at leaving at that either. As, mm-hmm. as human beings, we want to have what was the answer instead of leaving the tension. All right. What else? Uh, you want to share one more one more person yeah, with us? There's okay. one more person, uh, not a translator, but also important in the history of the English Bible as well as the American feminist movement. Uh, the Suffragettes? Yeah. Yeah, she was a suffragette. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was a housewife and a mother of seven children. She lived in Seneca Falls, New York. And she, as I'm sure most of you remember from your American history class in high school, um, was a huge leader in the um, the su- suffrage movement. Uh, she was one of the organizers of the Women's Right Convention in Seneca Falls in 1848, where she personally spearheaded the formulation of the Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions, which modeled itself off of the Declaration of Independence. Um, she ultimately campaigned for women's uh, or for the female suffrage, for, so the right to vote, for five decades including a term as the president of the National Women's Suffrage Association in the 1890s. Um, she also helped to uh, pass the Married Women's Property Act, so Julia Smith would have been very happy, mm-hmm. um, for which she gave several speeches to the American Congress. Uh But ultimately, she believed that the biggest stumbling block to women's advancement was the long-held belief that women's um, 
you know, that they were lower than men was divinely ordained by the infallible Bible. Therefore, she organized the woman's Bible, which was uh, basically a commentary. Um, she organized uh, and formed an all-female editorial board um, because it was time, in her opinion, for women to do the interpreting. So they would take a text from the Bible. So, for example, the first one that appears is Genesis 2. Mm -hmm. So they would print out Genesis 2, and then they would have a comment or, like, basically a couple of paragraphs explaining it um, by a scholar, a woman scholar, who would be identified by her initials. Um, So it was... Like, very much like, okay, well, here's Genesis 2. Here's what it meant. Here's what it means for women. Because in particular, they would look at the female characters in the story. So, Eve, in this case. Um, And one of the... uh, Something that Stanton was very proud of was that they had in their Bible a woman translator, Julia Smith. Hey! Yeah. She, like... Stanton was a huge fan of Julia Smith because she was like, look at this woman. This woman taught herself these biblical languages. She took it upon herself to do this great work. And she's a woman and she's a translator. And we're going to use her Mm -hmm. because she's amazing. And yeah, Stanton is just like a fangirl of Julia Smith. Like, it's (laughs) amazing. Um, But a couple of things that they did you know, that they were wrestling with was they were basically trying to prove that um, the Bible is not infallible. Uh, Stanton wanted to look and study the Bible using those um, lenses that we look at history and Mm -hmm. we look at English literature. So how do we study and take apart English uh, literature? Well, you look at it from different contexts, like historical context. You look at it through um, who wrote it. Why did they write it? Um, what are these motives? Because ultimately, God does not, did not write the Bible. Men wrote the Bible. So let's look at it through that lens, that the Bible isn't infallible. It's inspired. Mm-hmm. But the person who's holding the pen might have gotten some things wrong. Hmm, And so therefore, we should be able to kind of disregard those things that we think they got wrong. Uh, For example, that command to keep silent, Stanton says that there are so many interpretations of this text that women should be allowed to interpret the meaning for themselves guided by their own unassisted common sense. Hmm. So, you know, gosh darn it, stop telling those women what to do. They can interpret that text themselves. And if Mm -hmm. they think that that text is telling them that they need to keep silent in the church, that's okay. But if women decide that that doesn't apply to them because of historical context, also okay. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. women should be allowed to interpret that because it applies to them. Mm -hmm. They should be allowed to interpret that for themselves. Um, Also... Where it says in First Timothy chapter 2, there's this long passage on women's dress and hair. She goes, she kind of just pokes fun at that writer's obsession with women's braided hair when there are more important work to be done. <laughs> <laughs> like, she just thinks that that section is just ridiculous. Um, but 
as you can imagine, there was some opposition to the women's Bible. Uh, one clergyman um, stated that it was the work of women and the devil. <laughs> to which Stanton replied, His Santanic Majesty was not invited to join the revising committee, which consists of women alone. <laughs> There was even a reference to the uh, Rolling Stones album before the Rolling Stones were around because they had the album uh, their, at their at their Satanic Majesty's request. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> nice, nice. Um, it's interesting to me uh, knowing that in, in America, where Elizabeth Cady Stanton lived and worked and and pursued these projects, a country that has deep, deep, deep Protestant roots as well as Roman Catholic and other faiths as well. But like the the there are there is such such a preponderance of American Protestantism, and so much of the Protestant story was a criticism of medieval Catholicism's teaching that we the priests have the scriptures, we will tell you what they mean, don't ask mm-hmm. for yourselves. And the Protestant Reformation, if it meant anything, was let people read the scriptures on their own and discover and listen to the actual words, that you could have a movement like that that was like, yep, absolutely, we should all be reading the scriptures for ourselves, but not women, like that, like mm-hmm. there is this, and, and that in, in a way, everybody is comfortable with the idea of, well, I should be able to read for myself, but I don't like the idea of somebody else coming mm-hmm. to a different conclusion. And that in, a, in a way, what Elizabeth Cady Stanton does is to ask the same question that the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century asked, but to say this wasn't just about uh, popes and priests as the only ones who had access or people who spoke Latin. Wait a second, we've been doing this with men and women for now even longer. Mm -hmm. I like, uh, you know, when you're talking about the Timothy passages and things, where she allows people to kind of make up their own minds about it. Mm. You know, I'm thankful that I come from a tradition that for over 50 years now has ordained women, so I didn't have a fight, a struggle to become ordained. But I can respect other traditions, especially with half my family being Catholic. You know, if I would have stayed in that faith like I was supposed to when I was being raised, there was no way I'd ever be ordained. And that's okay. I don't like it, but I can live with it. Like, I understand. That's their tradition. That's their understanding. That's how they read scripture. Okay. That's fine. You know, so I appreciate that about her. Like, she's not just pushing things and saying, well, you know, it has to be this way. But however... However, if you read it, however you interpret it, however you you want to take this, that's okay. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's how almost all of the ELCA social statements that have come out since 1988 in the Lutheran ha- tradition, yeah, yeah, has also come out with it. It leaves that a- ambiguity that these are this is the church's stance, but at the same time that. The church is big enough mm-hmm. whether or not you agree with this issue or you are opposed to this issue. The church is big enough for all of us mm-hmm. that this isn't church dividing, that this is just we have to live in that tension. Right. Well, and we, we talked before as in times when we've especially talked about the, the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century that there's a... Uh, precedent that gets set once you have groups that are now defined by a particular theological stance that even if everybody or at least around this table could agree yes martin luther had some important uh, points to make and those are good re- reforms or wesley i mean like even if we can agree with that and maybe lots of people can agree with that um that also sets the precedent that now anytime there's something else we don't agree on now we have to split and have a schism over mm-hmm. it because now we don't agree about this issue or this issue or this issue and the ability to be able to say somehow there's got to be a place where we can live with we don't agree on this or that, and th- we all come to this with good faith. And that that's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a messy place to live because it means we don't always agree, and yet mm-hmm. promise not to walk away from each other. Um, I think it's important too 
before we uh, only think that's a modern invention or that's only, well, that only happened in the 20th century or the 16th century. I mean, you read the book of Acts and that they're mm-hmm. wrestling with things from the beginning. There was never a golden age where everybody was all of the same mind on everything. There were always, and even the question of what are the issues that are big enough disagreements that we do have to part company. We don't always agree on what are the deal breaker issues. Um, and because of that, it's messy to be church, but the, the commitment of we're, we're trying to be faithful here together, we're trying to listen and to be convinced that somehow God is, is at work in the process, that's a big act of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other things you want to commend to our attention uh, about Elizabeth Cady Stanton? I mean, not particularly about her. Um, I, again, I, I, I wanted to look at these three women today because... It, it, it's kind of nice to remind ourselves occasionally the process that it took to get the Bible that we are currently mm-hmm, reading. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, I tend to favor the New Revised Standard Version, mm-hmm. which was, I think, published in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and, but before that, there was the Revised, the revised Standard, Standard Version. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, there was the uh, New International Version, and there's the King James Version. You know, there's all these different translations of the English or or the Bible into English that we tend to look at. Um, But they didn't just arrive overnight. And um, these three women all helped contribute to the English version Mm -hmm. of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think they have some fascinating stories, both of where they did really well and where they did not quite so well (laughs) in the case of Helen Spurrell. But, you know, they're still, they were still part of that history. There's a a line I've heard attributed to N.T. Wright, who says he, he said he used to teach his students and he was teaching at seminary, um, that in the end he expects when he gets the glory, it will turn out about one third of what he has taught will turn out to have been wrong. He just doesn't know which one third it is. Um, and I, I, there's, I like that that humility that like you can you can be convinced about here's why I do things the way I do. Mm-hmm. Here's the process. Here and but also that humility. But there's the possibility there are things that are wrong about the way I'm seeing this or presenting this and being able to own that um, and to appreciate these voices of sisters and brothers in the faith both. Uh, the the strengths they bring and also the foibles and the ways we can learn even from things that we go I do differently mm-hmm. now but that that's mm-hmm. learning too and as well as uh, um, okay so one more thing about Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, the way that she read and interpreted the Bible is quite common now like mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. that we're taught in seminary is to look at the same ways that you look at English literature uh, the way that you look at history you know you read it through different lenses and those lenses change depending on who you are and what you're like specifically looking for and she kind of helped introduce that to reading the bible Mm -hmm. that before her that like that was something that you didn't really do a whole lot or if you did do it you weren't really doing it intentionally but she was very intentional about it and that has helped shaped how we study the bible cool so thank you, Elizabeth Katie Stanton. Well, and thank you for sharing these stories with us mm-hmm. today. We'll catch up with you next time on Crazy Bait Talk. See you guys. Bye.